Ok, let's get started. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, dear listeners. Uh, it's a pleasure to, to have you listening to us today. And uh, today is a bit of a cold day, you know, at least in Sheffield where I'm based. But I have the privilege to have with me Silvia Valenzuela, who comes from Spain, and uh, probably a little bit warmer where, where you are, Silvia. Yeah, it's like 15 degrees or, yeah, and sunny. Okay. That, that's, that sounds nice. Now, I know in Sheffield, it's pretty much gray and miserable, you know, like a, a normal winter day. It's really, really lovely to, to have you today. And I met Sylvia when she was working at the University of Sheffield. And uh, she's been one of these young academics who have found really inspiring in the way she's navigated her career. And uh, I was really, really keen to have you on the podcast because we've not seen each other in quite a few years. So to, to get our listeners to, to hear a little bit about your, you know, your career so far, can you give us an overview of your career? Thank you, Sandrine. Now it's lovely to, to be here today. Uh, I started my career with a degree in history in the University of Barcelona, and I had an Erasmus fellowship to do in Aix-en-Provence. Then I got a fellowship to do a PhD in archaeology in the University of Barcelona, and I did a research stay in the Natural History Museum in, in Paris, and also in the University of Montpellier. Then I had two, two postdoctoral fellowships, one in the University of Lisbon and a Marie Curie fellowship in the University of Sheffield when we met. And this was the base to apply for an ERC starting grant. And then I got a permanent position in the, in the Spanish National Research Council. How many years have you been back now in Spain? It's been five years now. I can't believe it's been that, that long. It's pretty crazy. So you spent a lot of time, you know, going basically back and forth, I suppose, between Spain and France originally. But what actually made you decide to take a position in the UK originally? And the first, so the first position that you had in the UK was a postdoc, sort of a transitional postdoc, not a postdoc where you apply for funding yourself. Huh? Exactly. Well, there were different reasons to, to go to the UK. First, there was an eminent professor who accepted me to apply for a Marie Curie fellowship with him. And also, I wanted to explore a new scientific tradition, as I had worked in Spain, France, and Portugal. Uh, and I didn't want to go to, to the United States because it, it seemed too, too far away. So was it about uh, developing something very different from what you had done during your PhD? or Well, it was a, a learning experience from different from different points of view. First, it was the language. Uh, the second was the different scientific tradition because um, the way uh, we write articles in English and publish in the scientific journals is different from what we do, for instance, in, in Spain or the traditional uh, journals in, in France, also in Portugal. So it was to have a new scientific tradition first, uh, to consolidate English second, and then in Sheffield, I, I learned a new technique that it was very relevant to my research. So this was the, the third uh, reason to, to go. And also the, the key thing was to, to work with Umberto Alvarela. Uh, that was very supportive uh, in my research. So was it was it somebody that you knew from the, the research environment? Was it somebody who was known in the field? And 
Yeah, he was uh, part of the jury in my PhD, so he was one of the reviewers. Uh, I knew him in Barcelona, and he seemed someone uh, who who could help people, and this was the key in, in order to, to apply with him. And it proved to be the, the right decision. Actually, he was very, very supportive. So did you say earlier that you applied for a fellowship to be able to come and work with him so early on? Well, yes, I did uh, during the postdoctoral fellowship in Lisbon. I applied for a one-month stay in Sheffield to prepare the Marie Curie Fellowship. And then I, we succeeded and, and I was able to, to come. So it's interesting. I mean, depending on the discipline, the position that you may apply after your PhD, uh, you know, getting a fellowship is not necessarily the first step. You know, people may take a postdoctoral position. But for you, why was it important early on to, to have a fellowship instead of just applying for, you know, a, an open position? Well, my dream was to, to have a permanent position as scientist. And at first I had the idea of, of integrating in a bigger team as a specialist. But then it became clear very soon that I had to develop my own line of research and to demonstrate leadership in order to have a, a permanent position. So I asked for help to people that were keen in helping young researchers and, and these, the, the postdoctoral fellowships were, were key. You know, I discuss with a lot of PhD students who at the end of their PhD don't necessarily know what it is that they want to do. Sometimes people don't necessarily have the confidence of knowing what they want to research for a postdoc. So, I mean, they go for a postdoc because of an interest, but they, they're not necessarily at the point where designing a fellowship is something that they're yet ready to do. So what made you ready? Or maybe you didn't feel ready at the time, I don't know. But wh what do you think made the difference in you being at that point where you could actually apply for this type of funding? Well, in my case, I had no, no other option. Basically, okay, okay. The only way to to keep working in academia, um, so I I went for it. So sometimes, yeah, I suppose when we have no option, we we don't have the privilege of of asking yourself, oh, I do, I don't, I'm not confident yet, and you just have to throw yourself in the in the ring. That's that, yeah, <laughs> and uh, but it's interesting because again, you said that you came to Sheffield and you you build the applications. How were you supported in that initial? process of, of applying for that early fellowship? I must say I had a lot of help from Umberto when building the application because I had the, the idea and I, I could bring the materials with me or study uh, archaeological assemblages from both Spain and, and the UK. But then he helped me with the English, with the methodology, he had the contacts. I mean, it was key um, in order to, to make also the application to be fit for Sheffield and the facilities and, and everything. And, and I think that this was the, the key of success, really. It's funny because I remember having conversation with postdoc who often, you know, this idea of independence, what does it mean to become independent? And often there is, um, in a way, there is a misconception that independence is about going completely on your own and having to figure everything out. And it's certainly not. Yeah, it hasn't been my experience at all. Uh, for me, being independent is asking for help to the right people, to, to the people that are keen, helping you, and then helping others. So it's a balance between developing your own line of research with the help of the, of the people who know how to do it, 
uh, and also then to help others. What do you think have been uh, really significant moments in, in this transition in, in your research independence? I mean, just getting that first fellowship is really incredible because, you know, for so many people, you need to apply so many times. And, and I remember a fellow that I know who had to apply eight times before getting your first fellowship. And I always use her case as, a, you know, as an example of resilience of when you have a desire of wanting to work on something and you're not letting go and you will go and 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 push and push and push until it happens some people may not have the courage to keep pushing when they get so many rejection but in a way for you these first few years as a as an independent fellow what were really moments that really impacting what what came afterwards it's difficult to say because uh, each change of contract and um, each contract has uh, had his own challenges i would say and because every time I was moving from one city to another, uh, there were many things to, to put in place. So there has been a, a lot of challenges. In, in a way, every contract has been a, a key moment. I have learned new things and I needed to face new challenges as, as well. But perhaps the most key thing was not only the scientific moments, let's say, so the, the professional contracts, but also the moments in my life, in my personal life, when I got married, when the children were born. So it was crucial to, to break the social barriers. There were many. Uh, with my first fellowship in Lisbon, people were asking me what I was doing in Lisbon if my husband was in Barcelona. And then they learned that I was pregnant and was like, wow. <laughs> and then I moved to Sheffield, and and at every time uh, I had to overcome questions like, "And um, you are coming to the conference, and you are letting your baby with your husband or with your parents?" And wow, it has been a constant in in all, all these years. So it's difficult, yeah, to to say just one moment because it has been a a constant path, I would say. And, and obviously, when, when you came to Sheffield, you lost your, your family network to support you. And uh, I, I don't know whether your husband was working or not at the time. You know, people are told that to build an academic career, this idea of mobility is important. And not, not everybody wants to have that. So how did you make it work? Working as a fellow, building your publication output and 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 having kids it's funny because often some women get really f upset when they asked about kids during their career because they feel well you will never ask this to a man but i think that the expectation that are placed on women in terms of the way they navigate their career is different so how did you make it work yourself you know within the context of your own family yeah, well, before having children, we had a lot of conversations with my husband that if we were about having children, we would share 50% the responsibility. And then it became apparent with my first child um, that we weren't getting the right balance. Let's say I was taking too, too many things on me. And, and we had a conversation saying, no, uh, it, it can be like that. So I let, I, I forced a little bit the thing. I, I went to a field work just one week when my first child was uh, one year and two months old. And then I let him alone, basically, for one week. And then he realized of how many things I was doing without him knowing it. 
So the key thing was to have the courage to say, okay, I am going to go one week out and you deal with it. And this was the key, to be honest, uh, because then then he realized. And, and then we, we were able to speak about the, the things, knowing uh, what was it to sleep two hours and then wake up and then to put the washing machine and then to wash the, all the, the dishes and... I must say that it was a bit of a terremoto when I arrived back home. Was like, wow, what happened? And he was so depressed because he he realized that it was so difficult to handle everything. But at the same time, it was a step. It was a key step in building this uh, right balance. And since I must say, it has been amazing. And from then on, uh, we we have uh, balanced the. The responsibilities and there has been only one time when we both um, had the, a conference in the same date uh, so we traveled with the children to Barcelona he had a conference in the United States and I had a conference in Argentina so we did Sheffield Barcelona and Barcelona <laughs> so you let you left the children with the your, with your with family mm. yeah 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 um, also the advantage is that we are not We were not so far away. Uh, it's different, I think, if you move from Europe to the United States or the way back, no? Um, but being in Europe, uh, and especially pre-COVID, with the cheap flights, you can manage uh, to get your network. So having, you know, still being able to access your family has also been important in having the backup that you that sometimes you do need. Uh... Yeah, but also uh, with my husband, we have been working. I mean, when I had to, to apply for the, the ESC starting grant, for instance, sometimes I had to work in the evenings or in, during the weekends. And I knew that he was with the children and everything was fine. And if he had a deadline, I was doing the same for him. So in a way, when you understand each other, yeah, it's like you know, you have the, the support. Yeah. Mm. There are lots of academic papers that are actually written on, you know, these dual career pathways for, for academics. And when both sides are, are trying to push their career at a period where you have young children, having a balanced approach is not easy. So having the courage to have conversation with the partners to make them realize that the balance isn't necessarily working for you, it, it takes a lot of courage. So... um What do you think have been things that you've done in earlier in the early years of your research career that's actually really made a difference in terms of you being able to really apply for, you know, bigger grants? What's been your approach? I don't know, in interacting with others or what's yeah. really made a difference? Yeah, this was the key point, the interaction with others, uh, both in the conferences, because then you knew, um, you know, more people. Uh, out of your normal network, I would say, um, and also asking for help, asking for, for advice, basically. I've been the, my whole career asking for advice to, to more experienced researchers. And luckily enough, they, they were keen in sharing their own experiences, their own knowledge. Uh, and this has been the, the key in order to know where to apply to the fellowships, how to do it, getting feedback from them, um, yeah, so knowing, knowing and speaking with people. 
It's interesting because in, in some ways, sometimes when we ask advice, the advice that people give us, it's not necessarily something that can work for us. Not all advice is good advice. Exactly. Yeah, this is right. I guess that I had no other choice, really. I feel like you ask for help and then you decide what do you take or not, what works for you or, or not. Uh, some people tell me, oh, you should go to the United States, but I knew that it wouldn't work for me at that stage. Because it was too far away. Uh, I knew uh, three couples that had broken because one of them going to the United States and then the hour, the time difference uh, makes that, yeah, it's difficult to, to find the, the right time to, to speak or, or and, and you cannot visit each other every three weeks. So this was the, the key thing also with my, with my husband when he had uh, a postdoctoral fellowship in Paris. We were visiting each other every three weeks. When I was in Lisbon, it was the same. And at the end of the day, yeah, the three weeks <laughs> time <laughs> time lapse was was important also, even with our families here in Barcelona. So yeah. And uh, so th there was an important uh, transition that you made because at some point you got one of your uh, fellowship. Uh, I think it was in Oxford, if I remember that correctly. So you had a fellowship that you took and then you made the decision not to stay there and to take your fellowship back to Spain. That's something that I think that for the listeners is, is something that's worth exploring. You know, fellowship belongs to you, not to the institution. And how do you make things work for you? Well, this, this has been the, the biggest decision, I would say, in, in my professional life. Uh, it, this was the, with the ERC starting grant, um, but I started to prepare it um, with Sheffield. Um, but then when I explored the possibility to, to have a permanent contract afterwards, in the case I, I was getting the project, the starting grant, it wasn't clear. And then uh, opportunity appeared to, to apply with Oxford, and I must say that yeah, the support was amazing. And then I got the, the, the starting grant. So I was supposed to, to go to Oxford. Uh, and this, in a way, it was completely unexpected. I, I just applied with Oxford because I said, what else I can do? I mean, it's an opportunity. Let's do it. And probably it won't work, but well, let's, let's go. And then when I had it, it was like, wow, I need to go to Oxford. And it's two hours and a half away from Sheffield when my family was, was based then with a train line that is crazily expensive. Uh, housing in Oxford was not as cheap as in Sheffield at all. So it, it was a problem for the family. And then when I asked uh, about the possibility to, to get a permanent position in, in Oxford, they weren't so supportive as uh, either. So this was like a warning attention. I, I didn't want to have the same experience as when I finished the, the Marie Curie Fellowship. I was one year and a half without any contract at all. And with the children in school and the little one in the nursery, paying a lot of money just to be able to work, which is um, a real mental challenge, I would say, because basically... Uh, we spoke the the situation uh, at home, and my husband told me, "Listen, we did a lot of savings with the Marie Curie Fellowship. You have the Deutsche Bank Fellowship <laughs> for the next two years. Don't worry. Uh, it's just an, an investment, and, and 
just keep going. No? So I was basically working uh, while paying for the nursery and, and working at the same time to do the publications and the ESC starting grant. And then the Oxford uh, thing appeared. No? But at the same time, it was like, okay, now I have the, the big project. It's the only time that the best possibility I have to get a permanent position somewhere. So for two months, I was speaking with different people where could be the best option in terms of um, yeah, the professional life and, and also family life. I, I was considering it very seriously. And then someone that had a Marie Curie in the University of York told me, listen, do you know about the Spanish National Research Council? If you come, they will open a position with your profile and then you need to, to win it. Go for it. So I was part of the jury for a PhD in, in Barcelona. And then I took the opportunity to speak with the director and he, he was very supportive. And, and then it was like, wow, I can go back home with the perspective of having a permanent position with our family network there. But then it was challenging also because my husband was offered a, a permanent position in the University of Leeds as a lecturer. What I like about this story is that you took things in your hands. So in a way, Oxford wasn't prepared to, to say to you, OK, we'll give you a permanent position at the end of your, your, your ERC grant which for the listeners who don't know about these grants, these are the most prestigious European fellowship. There is nothing bigger than that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if an institution isn't prepared to put you on an open-ended contract, basically giving you a, a job at the end of the fellowship, then when? And in a way, taking taking things into your hands, say, okay, I won't be the passive recipient of a decision made by, uni by a, a university, but I will take control. Yeah, definitely. And as always, it was asking for advice to, to people around that the, the solution came up. Yeah, using that moment of having that big, that big, big funding, say, actually, I'm not going to be the victim of the craziness of the research system. I'm taking control and I'm going to get what I feel that I deserve, which is, you know, a permanent position so that I don't have to worry every three or five years about where I'm going to end up. Yeah. Good, good on you for taking control. During the period where you were exploring positions be before you got uh, the big ERC, I remember that you went for lots of conversations, seeking places where you may apply and so on. And a lot of these interviews, they're kind of, uh, they're not necessarily very formal, but it's part of learning to get people to want to work with you, learning to get people to provide you a hosting place to apply for fellowship. What, what do you think that you, you've learned about academic recruitment through all these, you know, formal and informal conversation that you had? Yeah, well, I think that um, now that I have been also involved in recruiting processes myself, I realized that your CV and your publications and your exper expertise is very important, but it's also very important to, to get known. To, to get people to know you, value you, um, and if there's somebody who really wants you in the panel, then you have uh, a lot of chances to, to get the position. 
what has been your own approach to do this? Because often in the workshops that I run, I talk about this idea of visibility, create visibility for your, yourself in a way that works for you. Because, you know, people say, well, I do Twitter, I do this, I do that. And, you know, we all have to find our own way of becoming visible in a way that feels authentic. And so what's been your own approach to actually getting people to know about you and your work and your expertise? Um, in my case, it was going to conferences, international conferences, and then to speak with the people I was interested, to have the courage of presenting myself. Um, and asking, yeah, about, uh, I don't know, their work or opinion about something and, and then start a conversation with, with them. It's not something that comes easily to everyone. For everybody, you know, the first times you go to conferences, it can feel really scary. And often when I run workshops, people say, well, you know, I don't want to sell myself. It feels wrong. My good work should speak for itself. And I say, well, it won't. <laughs> so what, what do you think that you've learned to do well with the experience and the wisdom that you've gained? Well, it, it has been a, a long process. Uh, at the beginning, that's why I was so scared of going to conferences and speak in public and especially in English was, wow, a real, real challenge. But then necessity is like, push you, <laughs> pushes you because uh, I had no other choice than breaking my mental barrier uh, about speaking with people that I don't know. And then I started doing it. My mom used to, to tell me, you always have the no, but go for the yes. The no, it's already there, no, but go for the yes. And let's give it a try. So I just tried. I'm running this week a, a workshop on equality, diversity, and inclusion and talking with new PIs, research fellows, and people who are building their research team. And so we're going to have discussion about this idea of how do we create more diverse team, broadly speaking, because when you're a, a research group leader and you're trying to recruit really good people, the issues of equality, diversity, inclusion is really not an easy one. So how does it feel like yourself now as a research leader? That connection that you have when you're interviewing people or when you have people reaching out, how do you manage that process yourself? At the end, it's the if the, the person really wants to work in my team, then this is the key. More than their experience, more than the... I mean, if I see that someone is really interested, then yeah, it's, you can feel it in a way. In my case, it's been pretty diverse, I must say, uh, the, the people I have been working with. And so, and at the same time, I will take a course uh, next week about diversity and creating helping environments at work, because I think it's, it's very important. So when people show that they really care about the topic and they're really interested in uh, in the research. Uh... And also another aspect that I value a lot is integrity. I don't want someone who is going to do whatever necessary to reach their objective. I mean, I need to feel that people have integrity and a good partnership in academia. I don't like to competitive people in the same in the sense that whatever it takes they are going to, to do it i value people that yeah uh, want to share want to learn want to integrate in a research team and just to to be part of a learning process and of course we all want a permanent position in academia and and i will do my best to to support them in, in this stream 
But that's something that's incredibly hard to gauge in an interview. If you were going to give advice to a new PI who is starting to interview for their first PhD student and postdoc, also advice to you know to a postdoc or a PhD student who is trying to rejoin a group. Uh, I I would say that it's not easy in a formal interview when you have a very formalized atmosphere. It is not easy at all. But if you are going for a coffee or for a drink or something like that, more informal, then you can speak about everything and nothing. And then is I think that the, the situation where it's easier to see what's behind. And that's why, in a way, these in sort of informal interaction that you may have at a conference or doing research visit is a way of building the relationship because at the end of the day, it's about the relationship that people are building sort of through this informal means. So what has it been like to become a PI? You know, where, you know, you've recruited, you've had to deal with management, with finances, with research contract, with access to equipment. There is a lot of stuff to deal with. Well, it, it, it was a real challenge also because it came in a moment when I was moving back home. Okay. I had the support of my family, uh, but also I was alone because for one year and a half, my husband stayed in the UK and I was here in Barcelona with the children. So it's been all a at the same time, and also it was not easy to to manage people because I was used to manage myself. Uh, but then managing three different people with different expectations, with different skills, I would say as well. Um, so yeah, it was challenging. But at the same time, it has been very rewarding. And the fact that all the three postdocs have now positions in academia, it, it was a a good experience uh, in both ways. It was a good experience for them. Uh, they had a lot of support, and it was been a good experience for me because I managed. I managed to survive this this challenge. Uh, so I'm happy. But how did you approach it? Everybody's got different, you know, motivation, aspiration, and again, in the context of COVID, for a lot of people, it's been extremely challenging these last few years. What do you think you've learned to do in finding your feet of managing people who are very different? The key thing is that I understood them very, very well. I understood how they felt in every moment because I was there as well years ago. So I knew that they needed to build their confidence. They had to, to go to conferences, uh, to finish their papers, to learn how to write in a very clear way. They needed to, to build their network. Um, they needed also to build their funding applications. And I was there giving advice, uh, feedback on the funding applications, feedback on the papers. In a way, uh, for me, the, the ERC project was a, well, we wanted to do the research, of course, but it was also mean for all of us, all the members of the team, to build our careers. So in my case, was to to have a permanent position afterwards, and in their case, to have a, a fellowship of their own afterwards, because this was the right path, in a way, to, to have a permanent position afterwards. And we succeeded. You used the term the right path, and uh, not all postdocs will necessarily have moved to an academic position. And as a PI, you know, how do you see that that balance between giving opportunities that really focus on the research but also giving opportunities to postdocs who maybe will not have academic position and may may move to other type of roles. 
And and there is this thing of, you know, how do you create an environment where people will feel at ease and that it's okay to move to other type of role that are non well, non non research, non you know, non-academic roles? In my case, um all the three wanted to all the three postdocs wanted to have a career in academia. I did whatever I could to to support them in this path. In a way, well, supported them to, to have their own fellowships. Um, I have a master's student that it's not clear that he, uh, whether uh, he will manage to, to get a, a career in academia. What I tell him is, listen, just give a try. And if it happens, super. And if it doesn't happen, it was the expectable in a way, no? it, because it's always very difficult. But there's no reason of not trying. I mean, it's always worth trying your dream. And if at the end it doesn't come through in a way, well, let's, let's, let's find another way and everything will be okay in a way because at the end of the day, having a permanent position in academia is like, wow. Like a miracle, no? <laughs> so yes, often it feels like <laughs> it, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, again, this idea of, you know, the way that you interact within the institution, because as a new members of staff in a research institute, you become part of the, the structure of the institution. And lots of things will be thrown into your direction in terms of getting involved in this committee, in that, and, and lots of other things. You, you described that in that first year, you, you were on your own with the kids and you were recruiting your team members. So how did you learn to decide what to say yes to and what to say no to in terms of making things manageable to deliver the project? Did you have a strategy or did you get it all wrong? How did you go about it? Uh, I kind of multiplied myself and relied on, on my family as well. Um, because when things came one, one thing after the other, uh, fortunately. So I didn't have to, to choose too much uh, at the beginning. When I arrived to the institution, everybody was uh, fully aware of what an ERC project is, and, and I was arriving new and setting up a new lab. It was uh, starting from scratch. So everybody knew that uh, they couldn't give me a lot of responsibilities in terms of the institution. But as soon as the project finishes, or well, uh, some months before the, the project finishes, uh, they appointed me as um, agent coordinator of the network of archaeology of the whole CSIC. It's like CSIC is like the CNRS, so it's building network across all the institutes that do archaeology in all Spain, which is a big responsibility in terms of yeah, CSIC. Yeah. Fortunately enough, it was at the end of the project, but it's it's been a real challenge to finish the project um, and then having this responsibility at the same time. And then, of course, the children are growing. And so, yeah, I, I, sometimes it feels like I'm running these Chinese dishes. Mm. <laughs> um, but fortunately, I, I can rely on, on my family. And, well, at the end of the day, we are doing it. <laughs> mm. But, uh, I mean, do you have a way of saying no? I mean, because even during the course of your of your fellowship, things must have been thrown at you from the institution. And it may be an, an amazing center where the fellows are really well protected, 
but uh, I'm sure it can't be that good. There is always stuff that come your way where, you know, you have to make a decision. You really want to do stuff, but you're aware that it's just one more plate to spin. And in a way, that's almost the hardest. Say, okay, you know, I would like to do that, but not yet, not now. Right now, it has been the turning point where I'm going to start to say no to more things. Now that I have permanent position, I'm more settled down and I have done a number of things for the institution, like uh, being in the in committees, selection committees and having this position as uh, coordinator uh, uh, of the network and everything. Now it's the right time to start saying no. Um, okay. I started to to say no to conferences or to invitations to participate in projects because it feels like it's enough. I I cannot spin another plate. <laughs> but was it did, did you have a tendency and, and again I, I suppose when we settle in a new research center, you know, again this idea of good citizenship, it's like wanting other people also to feel that we want to contribute positively. How did you negotiate that in terms of saying yes to everything and making it really, really too hard? Or did you have an approach where you actually already said no to some stuff or, or did you just manage? I think that people value also when you say, I cannot, I cannot commit to that because people want things done. And if you are really honest saying, I cannot commit because I, I, I won't be able to do it. Then you are being honest to yourself and also to the other people. Mm. And as I said, now that I have the permanent position, it's easier for me to select. Before, I would have done, yeah, multiplying myself as I did already. But right now, it's like, okay, we, we can start. You're, you're get, yeah, you're getting to a sort of a breathing space or almost. Uh... Yeah, it's necessary. It's necessary because otherwise just things are just coming and coming and it arrives to a point where you cannot go further. So there's been a lot of conversation in the last couple of years in the UK about building a positive research culture. And, you know, there are lots of talks about it, but the reality on the ground, it's kind of a difficult issue to address. So in, in the context of the way that you work with your team or the way that you want to contribute in your own research institute. What does it mean to you as a research leader now to actually be a change maker for a positive research culture? What are maybe some of the practices that you have that you think are really part of the solution? I always have uh, conversations with the postdocs um, about what do they want to do afterwards. And then they commit to, to what they want. And I help in whatever I can for them to, to follow their own path. And for me, this respect and this support is, is basic. And also, even if I, sometimes I work during the weekends, uh, I try not to send the emails during the weekends or to schedule uh, them for Monday or whatever and respect their privacy and also to have my own space. So in a way, if you have this dialogue, open dialogue, it, it works. It, it has been easy in a way. 
so through the role that you may have now in terms of a building this uh, this you know archaeology network across Spain, I'm sure that research contexts in uh, in Spain, like a, a lots of other contexts, where there is not necessarily as much research funding as everybody would want, where there is very high competition, so lots of pressure put on people. What do you think is a way for you that you will want to contribute, you know, beyond your own contribution within your own group in terms of shaping or reshaping research culture, you know, in, in Spain, or at least, you know, in the context of your discipline? What needs to change? What do you want to change? What could change? One thing that I have discovered across the SIC is that people want to collaborate because we are scattered in different institutes. And people wanted really to, to have this network and the central organization gave some funding. So we organized workshops, uh, we organized uh, some funding for people to, to have uh, students in common between different institutes uh, or to build projects together. And it has worked wonderfully. It has been amazing. People really wanted to to collaborate uh, within the institution. Of course, then you have the competition uh, with the universities or with other research centers uh, across Europe. Um, but yeah, we have built uh, a stronger collaboration and, and community within CSIC. And I think that this has been a good contribution to, to the field. And in the future, we are working to, to build uh, common databases for, for data, for archaeological data. You can uh, be available online uh, and in a GIS platform. We will keep collaborating in the health and safety department. I think that we are building a, a very good and a nice thing together. Yeah. Is it is it something that is uh, that feels new in your discipline? More new. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I'm a biologist, and you know, the the idea of collaboration is kind of a given. But is it something where there were boundaries to collaboration for people in in your dis? Is it a discipline thing, or is it? Uh... Uh, archaeology is very interdisciplinary itself, so collaboration is it's normal. But what it was not normal, it was collaboration between people working in different institutes, in different research. Okay, okay. Because each research center, even if we are all from the same institution, uh, uh, each center has its own lines of research, its own area of study or expertise or um, different networks of collaboration. Uh, so the fact that the central system ask us to build collaboration between ourselves was completely new and it was something that people were keen in doing it mm -hmm. because they didn't, do it. they didn't do it before some of these things it's it needs to needs to be engineered you know people may have an interest in doing it but kind of generating this on your own can be really difficult so having a process of bringing people together on a regular basis make it happen even if there is a desire there was a desire before but nothing was happening yeah because we didn't have the structure and the fact that um central physic organization chose five areas that were artificial intelligence bio uh, cancer research origins of life and medicine and then us archaeology we were the only ones in humanities 
Okay, wow. It felt like a privilege and a responsibility. And I think that this was also the a key for success, that people were aware that, hey, the central organization has chosen five areas and we are one of us. Let's do it well. Mm. There was a there was an impetus of you know sort of a pressure put that we have to deliver this and uh, it's 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 an important moment and again it goes back to the thing that you were saying earlier so that sometimes we you know we don't we can't wait to have the confidence to do something we just have to throw ourselves in the pit and and see okay let's make something happen and and we'll see and. Uh, And in a way, it's kind of the next step to the, you know, the research leadership journey. It's like, it's not just you and your team. It's actually you as a, as a, as a research leader at a national level and making things much more, uh, much broader than just your research interests. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's a new challenge, but at the same time, it's, it's been very rewarding. That sounds amazing. Well, you know, you you certainly deserve. You've worked so hard for a very very long time, so it's it's amazing to be at that stage to to be able to contribute and and nice to be able to go back home as well because sometimes people end up staying, you know, in in other countries and wish they could go back. So it's uh, yeah, pretty pretty amazing. Yeah. To be honest, I I cannot complain of anything at all. So to sort of fin finish up the the conversation, if you had to do it all over again. <laughs> If you had to navigate that whole journey again, what would you tell your young self to have a journey with more ease? What would be the wisdom you would tell you know your young self to navigate your research career? Just be patient. That's that's because I have been, I have um, had a lot of anxiety uh, because of the uncertainty of the about the future, not knowing what could come next, and. Um, So yeah, I would tell myself just be patient. So my my final question, Silva, is about um, something that sometimes maybe it's a bit strange to ask that people in research, but I always love asking this question: is what gives you joy in research? Discovering new things. This is amazing when you find something in your data, or uh, when I look at the archaeological material and I find something new in terms of animal husbandry or diet or something like that it's well like wow and also helping others i'm very very happy when i can help others to succeed this gives me joy as well because it's like i feel helpful for others it's a good feeling <laughs> all right thank you so so much sylvia for this conversation really 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 appreciate thank you and thank you as well